You're listening to Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jam. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Michael Jam, and I'm here with Phil Hudson. He's joining us again. Welcome back, Phil. I'm back. Thank you for having me. He's welcome back. And today we're doing a Q&A episode. You guys sent in your questions, so we're going to try to answer them as best as we can. And uh, that's it, Phil. Exciting stuff. What do you, is it, <laughs> what do you, hit, hit us up, Phil. Take us in. Sounds good. I, I mean, it, just so everyone knows, these questions are pulled from Instagram. Uh, we put up a tile, which is just, just the logo for the podcast, and we invite people to ask questions there. So if you're not following Michael on Instagram, at Michael Jamin Writer, you can go there. And every couple of weeks, we put that tile up so people can uh, leave their questions there that you're not answering elsewhere. And uh, we got some good ones, I think. This oh, week. why you mentioned that, before we jump, jump into that, by the way, so yeah, I'm, I'm doing a show in Boston in November 12th and 13th. So if you're in the Boston area and you want to hear this, Go to michaeljammon.com slash live, and uh, you'll get more information on that. And I'll, I'll plug it at the end one more time. But okay, Phil, hit us with those questions. Sounds good. First question is a question that um, was asked during our last Q&A, but it was asked on YouTube, so I missed it. This is from Christina M. She's in your uh, screenwriting class. Oh. And I'm paraphrasing the question here. She asked it a couple different ways. Uh, effectively, she said, we see heroes of the writing world like Hemingway, who, um, who used alcohol as a writer's fuel, People like Jordan Peele openly discuss using marijuana in the creative process. What role does alcohol or other substances play in the creative process? <laughs> I, for me, none. I, I mean, it would anything like that would put me to sleep. I've never been on a in a writer's room where people were smoking or drinking. I, I not I, you probably get sued for that now, but I, I don't know. I mean, if people do that on their own time, that's fine with them. But I don't know. To me, it would it wouldn't work. Uh, it wouldn't be a good combination. Got it. Yeah, for me, also, I abstain, so I have yeah. no feedback to give on this. I do know people who who do participate, and it does help them. And, but I think that a lot of that is glorified and romanticized yeah. as part of what a writer is, and I don't know that it translates directly to being a professional. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I agree with that. Back in the day, I think there was talk, you know, I, there was a time, I think maybe in the early 80s, where drug use was not, uh, was it was almost common, or at least not a lot common, but, it, you know, it, it did happen in writers' rooms, but... Uh, not anymore. I have heard of and seen photos of some of the desks uh, on some of the studio lots. And then there's a random little tray you pull out with a mirror on it. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I wonder what this random tray was with a mirror is for. And I've never witnessed uh, that personally. So what do I know? But I'm not that yeah. old. I'm very young. Yeah, that's very young. Yeah. Super young. All right, Christine, I hope that answered that question uh, well for you. Uh, Dave Crossman, frequent flyer on the podcast. Oh, uh, Crossman. Also a member of the course. He, he posted a question in the Instagram. There are grumblings that a lot of rooms, especially mini rooms, can't on streamers are upper level only or very close to that. For emerging writers, what can they do to help their chances chances at staffing, besides having a great script and experience as an assistant? Well, the, the problem is he's talking about mini rooms, which I don't have any firsthand experience with, and that's going to be probably what the next writer strike is over. And so, mini rooms are basically when the studios. Uh, they, have, they don't pick a show up to series. They say, mm, well, think about it. In the meantime, why don't you guys, here's a little bit of money. Why don't you guys write six episodes? And here's a couple of bucks to put together some, a staff of writers. And everyone's getting paid a fraction of what they're already, what they should get paid. And then the studio, after reading these six episodes, decides what, what the fate of the show is, even though we're doing all, and I, again, I've never done this before, but you know, the writers are doing all that work. And honestly, I think it's, I think it's absolutely awful. And I think, Writers are desperate and they're hungry for work. And so they're like, they're really put in a position where 
what am I going to do? What am I going to say no? And um, it's it's really it's it's abusive. If the studio, in my opinion, if the studio decides to make a show, they incur the risks. That's the that's what happens when you're in business. If you open up a taco stand, you incur the risk of going out of business, and you buy all the taco ingredients up front. Crossman's asking so. Are these rooms staffed with high-level writers or low-level writers? I don't even know. I don't know what the, the tendency is. And so he's asking, well, how can a low-level writer, writer get into an abusive relationship with the studio <laughs> as opposed to just a high-level writer? I, I don't know. Hopefully these things end and uh, you know, hopefully they're resolved because I don't feel like it's, it's – I don't think it's – I think it's a joke, the fact that they're making writers do this. It's a cost-cutting cutting, uh, scenario, and no writer's happy with it because you're doing all the, the same amount of work. So he's saying, well, how can a low-level writer break in? I don't really know. Um, I, I, I can tell this, though, from, from my other experiences on other shows that are not mini-rooms. Uh, they tend to be staffing low-level. It's, it's the high-level writers that are having a hard time getting work because – the studio says, "Well, we we have room for six writers. We let's hire some cheap ones, you know, as opposed." Mm -hmm. And so that seems to be the trend, but you know, it'll change tomorrow, and, and maybe it's different from show to show. So I really can't speak. I can't speak to this question too well. <laughs> well, I, for me, what it sounds like is this highlights the importance of the WGA, yeah, right, and, and the reason why having um, that union or that 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 guild represent all of the writers to arbitrate credits and stand up for unified bargaining rights. I mean, all of this stuff is very important. Yeah. And imagine doing this as just literally someone who's not represented by a mass of people. So you have the weight of the top talent in the world stepping out from the production machine. And we can see that that costs millions and millions of dollars to these companies. And that's why people strike. So to your point, I mean, I've heard of this on major studio films. I've heard it kind of down the level over the couple of years. So be interesting to see what happens over the next year or two. Yeah. This topic. I mean, yeah, hopefully I'm yeah. hearing there might be a strike next, uh, next year. It could happen. It, it could happen. Could, you got to threaten strike. Happen. You have to threaten strike. If you don't, there's no threat of strike. Uh, you have no negotiating power. So at the very least. Right. So. Right. Right. Well, awesome. Okay. And here's another question. I'm sure you've, you've answered many times on the podcast and in your Q and A's, but I think it's important to talk about again. Yeah. Uh, not spelt Dylan on Instagram. What contests do you recommend? Uh, from what I understand, I've never entered a contest, but I understand that there are a couple of big ones that the Nichols competition is worth it. Maybe the Sundance, maybe the maybe the Blacklist competition, right? They have one. Uh, yeah, Austin. Austin. So there are a handful of big ones, but if this, if you, I, I suspect the smaller ones that you've never heard of. Some people are trying to get me to do a contest. I'm like, I, I'm telling you, I just told you, you know, you don't want the small ones. You don't want me doing a contest. That's, that would be just a money-making thing for me, and it wouldn't help you. Yeah. And, we, <laughs> and we dove into this in one of our earlier podcasts, like maybe episode five, I want to say. Um, but in that episode, we talked about my experience on the indie side of this. I did a lot of indie film festivals and volunteered at things like Sundance. A lot of those contests are being read by the Phil Hudson's in film school, making decisions and determinations about screenplays. Yeah. And at the time, I felt like I had a good opinion about what a good script was. But uh, fa you know, flash forward seven years, I had no clue. Yeah, I had no clue what a good script was, and I'm sure I'm going to think the same thing about myself seven years from now. Right. So, those are the people making those decisions about the fate of your script, and so I don't know that I take a lot of um, clout or respect from from the opinions of those smaller 
film festival. Someone asked me a question about coverage, saying the same thing. Which coverage? Or he got coverage yeah. from three different. Is, I don't know. Is that one of the questions you're going to talk about? I'll it's one of the questions. It's a, again something we've talked about before, but again, it came up, and I think it's because your audience has grown uh, mm-hmm. pretty dramatically. So a lot of people have missed out on some of this early conversation we had almost a year ago. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, it's another one. Um, is it worth getting script coverage? So this one guy I saw in particular, he's like, I got coverage from three different. I got you know, and they, they're all you know contradictory. What do I do? Like, well, what did you expect? You're who's giving you coverage? They don't know anything. They're not getting paid well. These are people who are not industry insiders. If they were, they wouldn't be reading script coverage. That's not, you know. So if you can find someone, this is what you get what you pay for. If you can find someone who has maybe retired, who has a long credit history, uh, and now longer is working as a writer, if you can get them to read and, and give you coverage or you know script analysis, that would be worth it. Uh, but you have to do your due diligence and find out what their credits are and read some of their work, read their work. If you don't like their work, why, why would you respect their opinion? And so this is not the case with this guy. I'm sure he just, uh, I, I, here's a company. They said, here's some coverage. It's like, okay, well they just took your money. So, but if you're going to get coverage from somebody who knows what they're doing, it's going to cost you. I mean, that's just how it is because you're paying for their expertise. Yeah. But I would interject and say that a lot of these other coverage services do cost people. Oh. And I don't think it's an exchange of value that merits the the ticket price. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was first diving into this stuff, 2008, 2009, that was a common thing in the threads to do is go get script coverage or have a script doctor read and give you notes. And you pay $500 to some of these people to do that. Yeah. And $500. What's the value? Wow. Yeah. What's the value there, man? Yeah. So there you go, Michael. There's your next business venture. Just go read a bunch of scripts and pay people. Ching, ching. Yeah, but I would, I would charge all, you know, I'd charge one five hundred dollars because you got to think about yeah. it. It's going to take you, uh, it's going to take you a couple hours to read it and then type up notes and then, you know, a conversation and you're not paying for, well, I'm not, I'm not in the business, but you know, of, of doing coverage, but you're paying for their years of doing this. You're not paying for, they're paying for their expertise. You're not paying for the, the, the two hours that they took sure. to read it. But, okay. Sure. So last October or November, when we recorded that podcast episode where we talked about this, um, I had some friends from film school that were working at a pretty high-level, well-known script coverage service mm-hmm. that is now defunct. They are out of business. Oh yeah. And those two friends do not work in Hollywood. They've never PA'd a day on a Hollywood set. They went to film school. They have the same degree I did. Um, I've offered to get them jobs in the industry. They they don't want to take them. They are doing that job. And honestly, they probably get paid more as a PA than they would doing that job. But I think it feels more like I'm a writer and look, instead of feeling like I'm a oh. coffee fetcher. Oh. Uh, but those guys are talking about starting their own thing now. And, and you know, kudos to them for being entrepreneurs. But I, I just wonder how much value you can actually get from a service like that when that person's never set a day on set, yeah. like a real set. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, be, do you have to do your due diligence as anything. Yep. Okay. All right. And then we'll give credit to that person when I find his question or their question down here. All right. Uh, at D Molina 3715, what is a common way screenwriters get fired? Oh, uh, well, TV, right? Well, let's talk about TV writers. I would, for, if, you, if you're at a movie and you sell it and a director is going to decide to make it, you've already been fired. Because they're going to hire another writer to do the rewrite or maybe the director will do it. You're The minute you get your paycheck you've been fired i mean it's unusual mm. for the for the original writer to work all the way through a project usually they hire like tons of writers uh but in tv the way you get fired is um 
A, you could have a bad attitude, but also your your scripts could not come in well, you know, in, in professional shape. Uh, you could be argumentative. Often it's just like uh, those people disappear. You really, you know, you don't have a lot of time to hide. I, I was actually thinking about this earlier today. It's like it re- the, the industry has changed. This is not an answer to the question, but I think it's kind of interesting. The interesting has changed so much. Uh, as a So when I came up, you had a sitcom, you work on the sitcom for 22 episodes and you go back year after year and you really learned a lot and you grow and you grew and, eat, and you came from a school. In other words, like, you know, I came from Just Shoot Me. That was the first school, but that which, which grew out of the Frazier School, which grew out of the Cheers School. So there was kind of like a, like a whole history of people. A lineage. A lineage, like a pedigree, right? And so yeah, yeah. you don't have that now because those shows just don't exist. And so you might do a show for eight episodes, then you're out of work and you get on another show. And I think it's going to wind up catching up to the industry in terms of quality because there's so much that you have to learn on the job that you just don't know. Uh, until just, it's just, you know, it comes from years of experience. We'll, we'll see. I, I don't know, but I, I suspect that's gonna, that's my feeling. It's gonna, it's gonna hurt the quality of at least comedies. So, but that's yeah. not the question. How do you yeah, get fired? Get a bad attitude, don't know how to write. <laughs> one or two, one of those two <laughs> and, things. And you've, you've discussed earlier in the, in other episodes and other things we you've put on social media that the way you get fired, the way you know you've been fired is you don't get invited back yeah. to another season. Yeah, you have a contract, right, exactly. You don't really get fired. They say they're not picking up your option. That's what you hear. So, yeah. Yep, there you go. All right, uh, hail at hail underscore I underscore B. If a show is in the middle of a story arc that has been horribly received, how do you correct the course? You wouldn't know because... It takes months to produce these things, and then they usually air them months later. And so by the time a show airs, it's it's usually not in production anymore. Again, that would be not the case if you're talking about a sitcom that was 22 episodes, because then you air and run at the same time. But now, it's eight or 10 episodes. uh, Usually, it's way too late. It's way too late. It's already in the can. I think uh, in the uh, multicam, you do have the feedback from... Uh, rehearsals and things like that, right? Well, you have feed, you always have rehearsals, whether it's single or multi-cam. But it's not. I guess it's not the story arc that you're going through. In a, it's in not, a and you're not like, it's not the audience. You're not expecting to get audience feedback. If you know, if these two characters, you know, the audience doesn't like the storyline, that's that's a little different than you know whether whether the story or not works at the table reader at rehearsal. You'll know you'll know if it works. Right. Right. Okay. Awesome. Uh, at Nicholas Theriot. Um, is is going to an expensive film school like UCLA or USC worth it? By the way, I love your content. I've been told by my dad, if I don't go into engineering or science, I will not be able to make a living. So I've not had much guidance on how to pursue filmmaking. Your channel's so direct and gives golden advice. So thank you. I appreciate you. Happy emoji. Well, son, you're you're not a new son now. Uh, (laughs) Go to film. Well, here's the thing. Is it worth it? The education, the degree itself is probably not worth it, but the education and the context might be worth it. And that just depends. The education depends on who's teaching your classes uh, and, and the context are, of course, your peers uh, in, your, in your graduating class. And do you get along with them and do you stay in touch with them? But, you know, you can learn so much. Like If you want to go to film school, it's like a trade school. So you'll learn how you'll learn lighting and editing and you'll learn what software is. But if you want to be a screenwriter, you don't need to know what the light, how to light. You don't need to learn, you know, all that stuff. It's, well, do you want to learn it? You know, 
But if you want to mm -hmm. learn screenwriting, no, you do not. I didn't go to film school. You just need to learn the craft of screenwriting. You have to learn some way or another, but you don't have to go to film school for that. You could learn, you know, you take a course. Yeah. Uh, I'd agree with that sentiment. I think, was it beneficial for me to go to film school and study screenwriting? Sure, in the sense that it forced me to hit me deadlines. So I wrote a lot more than I would have on my own. Mm -hmm. So I helped instill some of those habits that I needed. In terms of contacts, I don't know that I got a lot of great contacts out of that or networking. Schools like USC and UCLA, I think so. I think that there are some great networking opportunities there. Uh, but going back to advice you gave me when I was asking you, should I go to film school or move to LA? You're, what you said was, well, if you get a master's degree, at least you can teach college at some point. That's right. And so that, that's it also- If it doesn't work out for you. And that, but that's also part of the problem. So you may go to a college where someone has a master's degree teaching you, but they don't know because they haven't done it. So you really got to find out who's teaching your classes and you can, you can find that out online. You can find out, you know, I'm sure they teach, they tell you. Right. Yeah. I, I think definitely look it up. I had multiple screenwriting teachers. One of them was an old retired, uh, curmudgeonly guy who, uh, wrote a bunch of films in the eighties that were very, very popular. And I, I got the most out of that class. Interestingly enough, a lot of the younger people did not like his class because he was pretty curmudgeonly about the feedback he gave. Yeah. If he didn't like it, he told you. Uh, and a lot of the other teachers would kind of uh, stoke the ego a little. You mm -hmm. can do it. Don't worry about it. This is like no real feedback given. Yeah. Uh, no, no directness. Um, so if you're willing to submit yourself to some real scrutiny, find a pro and let them uh, rip it apart. Yeah. yeah. That's how you learn the most. Yeah. Right. So. All right. Yeah. Nicholas has another question uh, as follow up. If you want to become a director, is becoming a screenwriter first and insisting you direct your scripts a good idea? Um, no, if you're going to insist, good luck with that. Who are you going to insist with the studio? It doesn't work that way. They're not going to trust a 30, even that we low budget, a $30 million movie to see if you've never done it before. You can't, good luck insisting. And you can, sure. They're going to just say, we're going to walk, but you can certainly write and direct your own projects. No one's going to stop you from doing that and do it for free or next to nothing and hire friends and get people to help that for sure. Write and direct your own stuff. I encourage you. Uh, but you don't, you're not in a position to insist anything. You don't have the leverage, mm -hmm. you know, unless you put your thing on the, you know, unless you become a hit on your own, then you'll have leverage. But right now it sounds like insist. Good luck. Good luck, kid. Yeah. And Nicholas, I, I'd say that if you are considering going to UCLA or USC to go to school and you want to direct, that's probably a good thing to do because you're going to learn the technical aspects of studying film, watching lots of film, looking at things like juxtaposition, uh, mise-en-scene, the way sound design affects things. You're going to learn how to use cameras. You're going to learn how to do the lighting. Those are all valuable skills, but you don't even need to do that. I mean, you could take a look at Robert Rodriguez. He wrote a great book called Rebel Without a Crew, and he tells you how he made um, you know, El Mariachi, which blew up at Sundance and got him, launched his whole career right. being a, uh, uh, the filmmaker that he is today. And that book was ref was inspiration for people like John Favreau with Swingers. And they talked about how they just looked at that book as a model to do their indie film. And he didn't go to film school. Is that what you're saying? He didn't go to film school. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Neither, and and uh, Robert Rodriguez dropped out of film school right. because he wanted to make his own film. Yeah. You know? So like, there, there's a path for everything. And it's really just how risk averse you are. Mm -hmm. uh, you get a lot of scrutiny from your family. It might be really hard to not go to school, not get a degree. Um but also, but, this speaks you know, to what I was saying earlier, which maybe not earlier today, but this guy's saying, it was Nicholas saying, you know, can I, can I write and direct? Can I insi insist? But you're still asking for permission. You're saying, can I write and direct? You're asking for, don't ask for permission, do it. 
It's your money. It's your camera. It's your script. You do it. Write it. Right. Right. There you go, Nicholas. Yeah. All right. L. Barker Film. Why do the amounts of residual checks vary so much? It did, well, I think this comes from your social media yeah. where you open your residual checks, those fabled green envelopes. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I don't even care. Like they sell, when I'm at episodes, like I, it's an accounting question. Nothing could interest me less than accounting. So what happens is they sell, I read an episode and they sell it overseas. Sometimes it's overseas. Sometimes they sell it to this channel. Sometimes so, And sometimes this episode will air more times than that episode. And whether or not the studio wants to package it together or put it all, lump it together. Sometimes I read it. Sometimes they lump it together and sometimes it's separate. I don't even care. Like, you know, I don't, I'm not curious enough to get a, 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 you know, a lecture on how they count their, you know, as long as I get the money, you want to send it one check or 10, I don't really care. You know? Got it. Uh, but <laughs> that it sounds is, obnoxious, um, but I just, I'm, I'm not interested <laughs> enough. I'm a writer. I didn't get into this to find out, you know, I had to be an accountant. To do just, math. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think you did answer the question, right? The answer is it's based off of what they've sold and what they've produced and then how many, uh, how many bills they've charged back to the production department yeah. for getting your, yeah. get what you got. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Lady K Productions 2021. What does an executive producer do? Depends. It just depends on, there's so many titles and so many, often there are many executive producers. So like on a, on a TV show, the showrunner is almost always an executive producer and they are the head writer. They are in charge of making all the creative decisions, but there are also non-writing executive producers. There can be managers who've negotiated who represent talent that negotiated the title. They can just be people who have a production company who help facilitate the, the direction. Maybe they bought the IP that it's all based on. Maybe um, uh, sometimes these people don't even show up to work, which is fine. They might have a parking space outside a lot. You never, ever see them. Uh, sometimes a, a co-executive producer, which is a writer, will get promoted after several seasons and they might become a co an executive producer, although they don't have any of the responsibilities or even the the money that the other executive producers have, it's just a title bump. Um, it just it's like it's it just depends. So there's no easy there's no easy answer for that. But you know, you know, yeah, doesn't really matter. Gotcha. But the, <laughs> when we think about <laughs> when we think about executive producer, traditionally we are thinking about the showrunner, the head writer, the one who well sometimes you know, people think sold the show. Sometimes people think executive producers are in charge of wrangling, getting all the money. And maybe in film, that might be the case. But in, 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 in TV, they may facilitate some of that. It just depends on how much clout you have. I mean, you could be, you know, the hairdresser to the star. And if the star says you're an executive producer, you know, okay. You know, it's just, it's like that. I heard some grumblings from people through the uh, grapevine that, uh, well, if Phil Hudson's an associate producer, what do I have to do to be an associate producer on Tacoma FD? I was like, oh, I really? Yeah, yeah. You got to hustle. You got to hustle and do put your time in. Understand what plumbers to call and how to negotiate a cleaning contract. That's what you got to do. Yeah. Well, make yourself invaluable and, then, and work for a couple of years. Then you get bumped. Hey, it's Michael Jammin. If you like my videos and you want me to email them to you for free, join my watch list. Every Friday, I send out my top three videos. These are for writers, actors, creative types. You can unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm not going to spam you, and it's absolutely free. Just go to michaeljammin.com slash watch list. All right, the Chongo Bongo, which is a pretty great name. 
Uh, I'm seeing a lot of programs now that try and tell two stories at a time. Story A, which takes place in the present. Story B, that is usually told in the form of a flashback. Mm -hmm. What's your take on this style of storytelling? Is it gimmicky or legit? I personally find this annoying. You do or they do? They do. They, they do. do. I, you know, I don't know if it's even a gimmick. Usually they those flashbacks are meant to inform the present day. So they'll like, you know, a character will get a, be at a crossroads and, and hesitate. Why are they hesitating? Flashback to 10 years earlier. They got whatever happened in the past. And so that past informs the present. Like in Lost, that's how they did it. But I, I yeah. maybe I don't know if there are other examples that this a person hasn't mentioned. So I, I don't know. Um, but I don't think it's gimmicky. Yeah, I think, you know, when we kind of boil, what it boils down to, I think there's a lot of people with strong opinions about what writing devices or, or story devices you should be using. Um, I remember people um, knocking down voiceover and knocking over, knocking down a bunch of other things, but they serve wonderful purposes. Look at American Beauty, which won an Oscar, and mm -hmm. it starts with voiceover. Yeah. Right? Uh, and it tells you how it's going to end in the first five seconds of the entire thing. So I just think at the end of the day, you have your own style. And if that annoys you, don't write that way. And if it uh, you feel like it's uh, gimmicky, um, write something better, right? Use uh, some other literary device to improve the quality of your writing mm -hmm. to show that you don't need that type of flashback to tell that same story. Yeah, yeah. Flashbacks are convenient. I mean, they're, they, they're, they can be very helpful, but if you don't want to do it, don't use it. Yeah. yeah. They can be really funny too. I mean, I take a look at New Girl on Fox, right? That show... They use flashbacks for some of the funniest moments to inform things, you know, like Schmidt in the douche jar. They were pulling out like all the douchey things Schmidt had done right. and had to put money in this jar. And those are some of the funniest things I've ever, I've ever heard right. or seen on TV. They yeah. wrote a whole book about it. It's an opportunity for a good yeah. laugh, right? Right. Yeah. Transmedia. They, they, I mean, they literally wrote a book about it, which you should uh, look up. The, I think it's called the douche journals. It's pretty funny. Okay. All right. Uh, Carter Callahan. More recently, I've been seeing a lot of movies that lean more into symbolism and try to provoke the audience into finding an underlying meaning. What are your thoughts on symbolism when writing? And do you think we as screenwriters should be looking for moments to showcase that in our scripts? Oh, I have an opinion on that. That sounds complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I don't so, know. So I, I read this and I was like, shouldn't we always be using symbolism in our scripts to speak to things? I mean, um, and this, this speaks to the reverse engineering of scripts that you've talked about, right? Um, I think episode one, we talked about in my screenwriting classes in college, they would have us take a stopwatch and time scenes of an episode we were going to write a pilot of and kind of reverse engineer what the story was like, how many scenes you should have before an act break, right. all those different things. And you're like, I don't see how that's valuable at all. That's like, you know, you're reverse engineering a script and said you could just learn story structure right. and know how to do that. Yeah, I don't think that would be helpful. And that's what this speaks. This to me is similar to that where the symbolism to me might be a a technique that you can use to elicit emotion without having to hang a hat on it. I mean, the look at the first season of Mayans. Did you ever watch that? No. Yeah. It was Mayans, which is a, a spinoff of sons of anarchy. They literally have an animal at the front of every, at the beginning of every episode. And it represents some core object or thing that's going to happen in that episode. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's a coyote. Well, coyotes are the trickster. Like, Oh, there's an owl, there's wisdom. You know, it plays off of those different things. Well, you, you can and use I, symbolism to elevate, but that would be the last sure. thing that I would put in the script. Uh, the story is certainly the most important thing to do. Uh, yeah. Um, do you have to do it? I, 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 it sounds more of a drama thing than comedy, but uh, yeah. Go for yeah, it. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I, but I, I think your point is like you have to understand what the story is, what the theme is, uh, mm -hmm. all of these, you know, what the emotional 
tone of the show is, and then that will invoke the symbolism you should use to make your user or your end user feel that. And so much of that is mise-en-scene, right? So that's, your, that's set design and set yeah. deck. Yeah, exactly, right. department stuff they're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. So. right. Dead flowers on a scene instead of live flowers. Okay. The relationship's dying. Oh. Okay, there's your symbolism. You know. The example you've used before, Marin, and, and having Marin um, blurry in the background yeah. images and slowly come into focus as the season progresses. Right. Right. So that's, that's a beautiful nuance of film that makes me want to cry. It's so beautiful when mm-hmm. you really get down to the detail of it. But that's not something you necessarily need to stress about as a writer because you're not planning. You don't need to describe every single thing in the room. You need right. to just highlight the things that are most important to the scene. Right. I think if you once you become a filmmaker, you can concentrate more on that. But right now, if you're, if you're just writing scripts, uh, you know, first thing you got to learn is story structure. There you go. Awesome. Gladden underscore sane. Pretty long comment here, but I think it's a, a really interesting question. Uh, hey, I'm a writer who initially started screenwriting after life experiences of mine were covered by Vice and several producers approached me attempting to secure my life rights. Okay. One producer gave me the motivation to actually write the story myself, which set me on the path to becoming a writer. And I've since written several other pieces. My issue currently is that this producer has some pretty troubling personal issues and I don't think he's viewed too highly in the industry. He advised on a few things and gave critical feedback, which is valuable, but I feel like at this point, he's more or less holding these projects back. Is there a process for detaching an executive from a project as an unknown writer? How do I go about finding new representation? Is it easier to detach from this person if I find someone more stable to work with? Thanks so much. Well, first of all, let's be clear. He's not, this producer is not your representation. That's not, the producer's not a manager or writer. They're a business partner. So get that, you know, let's be clear on the terms. They're not your representation. Uh, also, this, you know, I've never had to deal with this, but the story is, you know, it sounds like the story is yours. It came from your life. It's your story. If you have a problem with the producer and they're not, feel like they're not pulling their, their weight or maybe they've lost, lost interest, have a conversation saying you're taking your project elsewhere. Just be aware that you better have an elsewhere. You know what I'm saying? Like, because you know, they'll say they're going to say they'll say one or two things. No, please give me ten more minutes or bye. And so, but I would leave. It sounds like it sounds like it's not working right now. What you don't have, you don't owe this person anything. It's your story. Uh, just say thank you. It's not working out. I'm going to try to make it another way. And you don't owe them anything. It's your story. If they wanted to shepherd your project and push it forward, and they're no longer doing that. They don't, I don't, they don't even care if they're not, if they're not working for you, then they don't care. So leave. Yeah. I, I think that you might awaken something where it spurs this person into action to try to hustle, to prove to you that they want to be involved in this project. Mm-hmm. And I think one of two things will happen with that. You can walk away and pursue other options while this person goes out and tries to do that. And if something comes of it, great, great. Uh, or they've really been so tainted in the industry at this point because of what they've done in their personal life that nothing's going to happen and nothing has changed for you. And so you can just continue to pursue other opportunities to expand your career and get these projects produced. Yeah. Yeah. Just say but bye. To be clear, that's that's a very normal, like you said, that's a business relationship and that happens all the time. Yeah. There are business partnerships that don't work out. Then you have to have those hard conversations and you have to break up. It's like a marriage. You're breaking it up and you're... Yeah, you're splitting off. But if but, he's not working for you, you have nothing to lose. I mean, he sounds like he's not doing anything, so leave. You know. Yep. There you go. All right, comrade, big body. No, it's a Russian big dude. That's what I get. Uh, can you try to break into screenwriting if you already have a nine to five, or do you have to bite the bullet and try to find a low-paying PA job? 
you can do whatever you want. Uh, I don't. There's no one way to get into screenwriting. But the problem is, if you make it a hobby, if you make it a if you make it a side hustle, or some people are like, can I just do this on the side? I'm a dentist. You can do whatever you want. I don't think it's reasonable. I don't. I think if you're treating like most people who want to become screeners, they're passionate about it or they're, they're serious about it and they're going to they're gonna do whatever it takes to become a writer. They're going to do, do whatever it takes. But if you're not willing to do whatever it takes because you're like, eh, I, also, I don't want to lose my job. I like, I'm a realtor. I like doing that. It's like, okay, you're, you're, you're handcuffing yourself. Maybe it'll happen, but it seems much more difficult to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, look... You can get very distracted with a lot of different things. And there are a lot of people in LA who want to be screenwriters. And when they say they want to be screenwriters, I think that they like to put on and project that they are screenwriters mm -hmm. because it's pretty low stakes. Yeah. What do, what do you have to deliver? No one wants to read your script as it is. And so oh, I'm working on the screenplay. I've been working on that thing and it just goes on and on and no one's going to question it. Oh, he's a writer. You know, writers have their own thing. It's ethereal. There's, you know, I think what you showcase on your social media and definitely in the course is that there's a producer. You have to be a producer or excuse me, you have to be a professional and the professional works every single day. They show up, they put in the time, they put out work, they finish things, they move on. Yeah. And uh, those are the people who make progress. Uh, I've read a lot of scripts this year from a lot of people who want to be screenwriters and they're putting in work. I've read a lot of scripts from people this year who are dabbling. They got feet in the. They've got their toe in the water. They're not diving in completely, and it shows because a year later they haven't written anything else. They're yeah. still working on that other thing. Yeah. You know? So, it's just you know, you can make it happen. You can you can put in the time, but you got to treat it like a job. What yeah. do you think it takes to be a professional screenwriter, Michael? Three, five hours a day? Yeah, right. I mean, you you got to dedicate. You have to really put your work into it. So. Yeah. So you got nine to five. Wake up at six. Write for three hours. Yeah. Right. Wake up at five. Write for three hours. Yeah. Get to work. Come back. Have and you'll get better. You will improve the more you write. You know, yep. for sure. I heard that number 200,000 words. Is that a number you've ever heard? I've never heard of that. Yeah, it comes from, uh, what was it? Uh, Ted Terrorosio's uh, website, wordplayer.com. They talk about that in one of their articles from the AOL forums. Mm -hmm. And they said that you have 200,000 bad words in you. You just have to get them out. Yeah. So if you can sit down and just pump out 200,000 words, you'll eventually become a good writer. Okay. Okay. Anyway, there you go. All right. At double R underscore R773. Oh, he's the guy. Is paying a script, or she's the, the woman, whatever it is, is paying a script consultant worth the money? We already answered that one. Yeah, it depends. Find out who they are, what they've done, read some of their work, and it might be worth every penny. Uh, but it only depends on who that person is. So I wouldn't use a service. I would find out the person. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Awesome. At Soldier Inui, E-N-N-U-I. What advice would you give to a beginner who's never written a script before? I, I would give you all of my advice. <laughs> I'd say get on the watch list. Start watching everything. And it's free. You're watch, listen to this podcast. It's free. Uh, you know, the YouTube channel is all free. And all this help is free. Then at some point, you're at some point, you're going to have to learn story structure. You're going to have to take a class. You could take mine. You could take someone else's. Find out who you're teaching it from, who, who's teaching you. And if you like them and you think they know what they're talking about, study from them. Because it's not something, it's just not inherent. It's, it's, it's not something that you can, that most people, I know very few people who have just done it on their own. It's, it's a craft, you know? So 
It's like saying someone who's a pilot, you know, a pilot. Would you get into a plane with a pilot who's never, who's not licensed, who's never studied, who's got, you know, would you? I wouldn't. I'd try to find someone who's done it before. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think, I, I think of it as an apprenticeship mm-hmm. almost, right? There's a, this is a trade, it's a craft. And you can uh, sit out back with a block of wood and a chisel and you can just go through resources and try to figure it out. Or you can sit down at the feet of a master who does it and has been doing it for 20, 30 years and watch the way they place the chisel and you can observe them and then they will give you a block of wood when you're ready. And then they will hold, you know, give you feedback on how you're holding that chisel and explain why this chisel versus that chisel will get this effect. And it's just a whole nuance, level of nuance to it that you don't get unless you're Again, sitting at the feet of a master, and yeah. I don't think you would call yourself a master. I, <laughs> I think many of us would, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you had a long career doing this for a long time on a bunch of shows everyone can watch right now. So I think it reflects the level of understanding that you have. But like you said, there's plenty of other people with courses. It's just about personal preference, and um, you eventually just have to bite the bullet and do it. Yeah. I personally have done it a lot. I know Dave Crossman, who we talked about earlier, asked a question. He's done it a lot. We've had lots of conversations about the value of a lot of the different courses that exist out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and I would both agree and tell you that the best course to take is yours. And that's just, you're not paying me to say that. That's a sincere, <laughs> the value of that course is uh, indescribable. And yeah. I think everyone can benefit from diving into that. I appreciate that. You know, as you could tell, I'm, even when I'm doing my videos on Inst- uh, you know, Instagram, TikTok, I'm like, how? I want to give you as much as I possibly can to, you know, I'm always thinking about, well, how can I give you a little bit more, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Um, let's see. Uh, at jchan1215. That's Jackie Chan? I definitely think it's Jackie Chan. It is probably Jackie. All right. Are there any pitfalls or disadvantages of writing a bio- biographical film for a person still alive? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the legality of that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if they're in the public domain. Maybe you can. I I, I don't know. I, I'm afraid I can't answer that. Yeah, I don't know that they would be in the public domain if they're still alive, just by default. But there is a, a really interesting book I would recommend called "Freedom for the Thought That You Hate." Mm-hmm. It's all about the First Amendment, and it talks about um, celebrity and what is celebrity and the famous case that basically allows you to write about people who are considered celebrities because they're giving up their rights because they exist in the public realm. Right. And uh, again, I'm not an attorney. You're not an attorney. This is not legal advice. I definitely contact an entertainment lawyer about it. But if that person is truly a, uh, a celebrity, you're probably okay to write something. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's going to be made. There's a high chance that those people are going to try to put some type of block on you doing that. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, they probably have more money and more power than you do to stop that from coming out. And you have to find something that's interesting enough for a production company or a studio to want to make. Mm-hmm. and odds are they would probably just go to that person if they wanted to have that thing made. Um, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is your script is a writing sample. So if you if you think of it as a writing sample, fine, then do it. Just don't expect to sell yeah. it. But if, you know, or you can come up with an original writing sample and write about that. It's it's really about the quality of your, you have to look at it that way, you know. Yeah, I think that's one huge nuance that you've brought to the screenwriting world, mm-hmm. uh, at least on the internet, is that writing is not to be sold. Writing is a sample. Yeah. Is it good? Could it be sold? Sure. It might be sold, but you're encouraging us all to write things at a level that could be sold, but understand that this is just proof that you can do the job so that you can have a career as a writer. Yeah. And that's what we all want. Yeah. No, we all may have ambitious goals of being showrunners or being mega producers, but at the end of the day, you got to know how to write and you should prove that. You know, I was just, cause I post so much, I get targeted now by other 
you know, screenwriters. And so someone, tar- I get somehow I get targeted by a clip from Aaron Sorkin talking about finding the story. And, and it's just so funny to hear him talk because it's like, I've never worked with him. I don't, I've never studied from him, you know, but he, we're saying the same thing. And it's not because I'm no Aaron Sorkin, but it's because any working writer would kind of tell you the same thing. It's like, you know, it, this is just what it, it takes to be a, a writer. This is how writing is done. So. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's like you said, man, it's a craft. Yeah. Ultimately you end up at the same place. All right. A couple more questions here. Um, the end to the beginning is screenwriting something you can graduate from or will there always be something new to learn in this field? Oh, you always get better. I mean, it's not, uh, yeah, I mean, you always can improve, but, uh, yeah, I don't know if you, but even if you graduate from it, even if you graduate from film school with your degree, it doesn't mean you're good. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. And I, I think that what the question is, is do you ever hit a threshold where you are a grandmaster and know everything? No. And you know, I, I, I tie it back to like anything, but for me, it's like Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is a, a really strong example of this. It's a martial art, just like any other martial art. And there are a series of belts you go through. You're a white belt, which means you know nothing. And then you get a stripe. This means you know a little bit. And then you get a second stripe, which knows you a little bit more. Third stripe, a little bit more. Fourth stripe, you're okay. And then you get a blue belt. And then you spend like two years as a blue belt. And then you spend five years as a purple belt. And then you spend two years as a brown belt. And then you become a black belt. And you're not done, and you think black belt's enough, but then you start getting stripes on your black belt. Yeah. And it might take 20, 30 years until 50 years into your career, into your journey of being uh, a jiu-jitsu player, you get the a master-level red belt. And there's like 15 people in the world who have that. Oh, wow. And those guys are still learning. They're 70-something years old, and they're still learning yeah. how to do it. They're getting better at it because it's just there's nuance. It changes. It shifts. You know, there's... It's just you bring something new. Someone else teaches you something new, and it's just a, a, a living entity. And I mean, look how writings progressed in the last two hundred years. Yeah, right. It's just it's just a different different format, different medium, and it's going to continue to do that. Yeah. All right. All right. And last question here at Kev underscore Matthew underscore McGenery. What makes a script or someone's writing good, in your opinion? As in, what do you like and or look for? Right. That's kind of easy. If you read someone's script and you want to turn the page to find out what happens next, it's a good script. That's it. It doesn't matter whether it's a thriller or drama, a comedy. If you want to turn the page to find out, it's a good script. And if you don't, and most don't, it's not. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Do you want to turn the page? Do you want to turn the page? No. There are some things I look for when I'm writing. Uh, look for, I like to see whether the act break pops. I like to see um, uh, whether the dialogue is crisp and fresh and you know, the joke's original. But all that will determine whether I want to turn the page as well. Right. There you go. Pretty straightforward. I yeah. think it, it just echoes and reiterates what you've been saying for almost a year, Michael. Yeah. 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 We, this, we've been doing this for almost a year. Amazing. Speaking of a year, Phil, I'm going to be in yeah. Boston. What is that? What, what a clunky re- segue. I'm going to be in Boston performing. Paul Revere. It's Paul Revere, right? Yeah. That's the Diane. Uh, I'll be in Boston performing my one-man show, a paper orchestra at the Ames in Amesbury, Massachusetts. Not Boston, but Amesbury, which is just north of the city. And uh, for t- I mean, November 12th and 13th, for tickets, you can go to michaeljammon.com slash live. It's a small, intimate venue, so 
Uh, don't wait until the last minute. The same thing when I did the show in LA. People were like, oh, it's already sold out. I'm like, yeah, it's sold out. You got to get there. It's going to sell out. So you have to get there. Get them as soon as you can if you want to come see me. I'd love to see you. It's an hour-long show followed by a Q&A. We get to talk about the work. And uh, if you're in the Boston area, come see me. That's great. Outside of that, just the normal places. You know, they can find you on social media, uh, at Michael Jammin Writer. Uh, you've got a bunch of freebies you give away. You talk about the watch list at michaeljammin.com slash watch list. Mm-hmm. You've got the free lesson for anyone who's, you know, uh, for who was this, um, whoever was asking about the new film, uh, Soldier Inui. You can go to at michaeljammin.com slash free. Anyone else can go there too. And you teach three really important principles of storytelling in that free course, uh, yeah. free lesson, which I highly, highly recommend. If you haven't heard me say that on the podcast yet, go there. And then obviously you have the course at michaeljammin.com slash course. Yeah. Which, uh, again, cannot cannot oversell that to you. Don't I might take it. it. <laughs> All right, everyone. You got to freshen up, Michael. Yeah, freshen up. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, until next week when we drop a new episode. Keep writing. Keep writing. This has been an episode of Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jamin and Phil Hudson. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing this podcast with someone who needs to hear today's subject. For free daily screenwriting tips, follow Michael on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Michael Jammin Writer. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Phil A. Hudson. This episode was produced by Phil Hudson and edited by Dallas Crane. Until next time, keep writing.